You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would please help us right now, God, to have a real reverence for you and for your word, God for your holiness, for your glory, God, right now. You're sitting in your throne room and cherubim and seraphim are declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so God, I pray that we would have a glimpse of your glory, that we would have a taste of your holiness, your perfection, Lord, that something from heaven would touch earth today, God, that we would hear your voice, that we would tremble at your word. And so, God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with uh, copies of the Bible, and uh, if you don't have a Bible with you here today, just put up your hand or holler at them. We want to make sure everyone has a chance to follow along, and if you're borrowing a Bible or if you have your own copy, open it up to Luke chapter 9 and find verse 57. Luke chapter 9 and find verse 57. I decided a little while ago that since I live in Brampton, I'd uh, learn how to play cricket. And uh, I played a little softball when I was uh, younger, and I thought, you know, how hard can it be? You know, there's just no glove, and the, the bat's a lot wider, and uh, you can hit it in any direction. I mean, this, this, must be, this must be easy. And I just decided, oh, yeah, I want to become a cricketer. You know, I want to sort of be part of so many people in Brampton, love cricket, understand cricket, all of that sort of thing. And I found myself, a guy in my small group uh, is very good at uh, cricket, And so he took me to this sort of cricket training facility with his team and tried to teach me how to bowl and tried to teach me how to bat. I've got all this gear on and the ball's coming and it's bouncing and I'm swinging and I'm not, it's, it's so embarrassing. And I just thought, you know, I'll just go to a couple of practices a couple of times and I'll be, I'll be set to be on the Canadian national team. You know, it, it would just, I didn't understand the commitment that is involved, these guys who, who play, they, they play cricket all the time. They pl- as soon as they could walk, they started, they started learning how to, how to bowl. They're so passionate about it, and, and because they practice, because of the commitment that's there, they're able to do what they do on the cricket pitch. You can't just sort of do it after a couple of tries. Others of us might have great academic aspirations. We'd like to see sort of a, a, a master's degree or a, to have PhD beside our name. And we think, you know, you know, take a couple of classes and write some papers. And we don't realize the rigorous discipline to do the reading and not only just get the reading done, but to analyze and synthesize and to write with accuracy and to come up with a, with a thesis that is new and unique and then to be able to defend that. You don't realize the commitment 
that's, that's involved. Other people want to, want to fall in love and they, uh, they meet a member of the opposite sex and, and things sort of start to, uh, th- there's some chemistry there and, and, and things seem to be going really well and maybe there's, maybe there's, maybe there's a, a marriage or maybe a dating relationship that starts but then things start to get really hard and you start to disagree on things and you need to start working things out and you realize this, it, it's not just as easy as just sort of falling in love and putting a ring on someone's figure. It's not just as easy as registering for some courses and ending up with a PhD. It's not as easy as just picking up a cricket bat. What's missing and what we need to understand and identify is the importance of commitment. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to have three conversations with three different individuals about following him. And what Jesus gets at with each and every one of them is the importance of commitment. That if we are going to follow Jesus Christ, we need to be committed to following him. It's not just something that you can do on the weekends. It's not just something that you do in your spare time or when you get around to it. It's something that requires full and complete commitment. In verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. As we look at this passage, we can see there's these three different individuals and in the context of every conversation is the word follow. In verse 57, the guy commits, he says, I'll follow you wherever you want to, wherever you go. Verse 59, Jesus invited that person, he said, follow me. And then down in verse 61, someone else comes along and says, I will follow. All of these people want to follow Jesus Christ. That's the series that we're in right now, following him. All of the times in which Jesus is in a conversation or giving a a message about what it means to follow him. That's what we're looking at in this series. But the thing that's surprising about this passage, and I don't know if you caught it or if you're familiar with this passage, but Jesus seems shockingly harsh and uncharacteristically uncaring insensitive to these individuals. Let the dead bury their own dead. Don't don't go and say goodbye to your loved ones before you come and follow me. It seems strangely out of character for Jesus. He seems shockingly unsympathetic and abrasive. And I'm always reminded that whenever I come to a passage where there's something that's coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ and I don't really understand what he's saying or I don't really understand why he's saying it, 
I may not get the what and I may not get the why, but I always have to circle back to and remind myself of the who. I may not get what Jesus is saying. I may not get why he's saying it. I may not be able to interpret because I have the written text here, the tone that he spoke these things, but I know who he is. And here's three things I know about Jesus for sure. And I want to introduce these as a bit of preamble. And it's, it's, it's these three truths about Jesus Christ that are going to help us rightly interpret this passage, which is so often either avoided or interpreted incorrectly or sloppily. Here's the first one, that Jesus is omniscient. That Jesus is omniscient. Omniscience... Omni means all, science means knowledge, omniscience, omniscience means that Jesus knows all things. He knows everything about everyone. And these three people that Jesus is interacting with, he knew what they had for breakfast. He knew what they were going to have for lunch. He knew what their favorite song was in high school. He, he knows their different fears and anxieties. He knew the exact precise number of hairs on their head. He knew everything about them. He knew them better than they knew themselves. And it's that omniscient knowledge that Jesus possesses that allows him to speak directly to that individual situation. I put a couple of examples in your notes, just references. We don't have time to look them up right now, but John chapter one, when Jesus meets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's like, okay, this is great. This is the first time meeting this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, and then Jesus says, oh, Nathaniel, yeah, I remember you from the fig tree. And then Nathaniel sort of freaks out. He's like, that was just me in the tree, dude. You were not there. I could see for miles all around. There was no one else there, and yet Jesus knew where Nathaniel had spent his time before coming to meet Jesus. Similarly, when Jesus meets the woman um, from Samaria at the well in John chapter 4, which is in your notes there, Jesus knew that woman's marital history and her precise present marital status or the lack thereof. He knew that about her from the very beginning. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus talking with the rich young ruler, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He knew that money was an idol in that man's heart. That's why he asked that question. He didn't tell everyone to sell all they had and to give their possessions to the poor. He didn't tell that to Zacchaeus in the next chapter. He didn't tell it to Levi, who was a tax collector when Jesus called him. He didn't tell it to James and John and Peter and Andrew when he called them. That's not normally a prerequisite for following him, but Jesus had omniscient knowledge about the rich young ruler and told him, you must sell everything. Also, the the man in Mark chapter 5, the man who, um, who, who was healed from, from being possessed by a legion of demons. And Jesus is getting on the boat ready to go off to the next place. And the man's begging Jesus, let me go with you. But Jesus, having omniscient knowledge, says, no, you need to stay here. And you need to tell people what I have done for you. And so Jesus has omniscient knowledge about every single individual and he treats every single person as an individual and speaks directly into their situation. And that's what he's doing here. Secondly, Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy that he came to fulfill the law and would never command someone to break the law. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the law. 
I've come to fulfill it. And so Jesus would not be telling any of these people, any of the statements that he's going to say that might seem harsh, that might seem like go and treat other people in an unloving way, that couldn't be what he's doing. Jesus would never tell someone that would contradict his greatest commandment, which is on this banner right here, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So whatever Jesus tells these people to do, as harsh as it may seem, as abrasive as it may come across, Jesus can only be telling these people to go and love other people, no matter what he tells them to do. He's holy. And then thirdly, he's loving. He's loving. I know if you were to spend enough time around the Duncan household or around the Harvest Brampton office, that there are oftentimes words or tones or expressions that would come out of my mouth that are not loving. And sometimes it's saying the right thing, but even saying it in the wrong way. And listen, that is true of Ted Duncan. That's true of all of us. But it's never true of Jesus Christ. Jesus was loving all the time. And so when we hear him say things like, let the dead bury the dead. When we hear him say things like, don't go and say goodbye to your family. We need to understand that there isn't a hint of being impatient, unkind, irritable, arrogant, or rude. Because Jesus is loving. And so here Jesus is with omniscient knowledge, full of holiness and full of love, speaking to each of these individuals, meeting them on their specific terms. Now, that doesn't mean that we sort of stand outside of this passage and be like, well, this is just intended for those three guys, and I'm kind of off the hook here. No, in speaking to these individuals, Jesus is laying down principles for commitment. Not commitment for athletics or for academics or for romantic love, but commitment for following him. And so with that, by means of a, of a preamble, just to be clear about who Jesus is, let's take a closer look at what he says to these people. The first guy seems so enthusiastic. Verse 57, I'll follow you wherever you go. Whatever you, whatever you tell me to do, Jesus, I will do. And then Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now jot this down as we explore this topic of commitment from this passage, that commitment means I must surrender my security. I must surrender my security. When I think about this uh, person coming to Jesus along the road. I think about myself at summer camp. I think about myself at the men's conference. I think about myself at the winter retreat where the speaker speaks and the worship band's playing and the call is made and then I stand. Whatever it takes, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I'm so eager to make that commitment and yet I'm so unaware of what is involved and what it will cost me in making that commitment. Can anyone else identify with that? Just so overwhelmed with the love of God and the power of the Spirit moving and this almost overzealous, this overcommitment. And Jesus recognized that in this man. And then he gave this familiar saying about foxes having holes and birds having nests and the Son of Man having nowhere to lay his head. Now, many people look at this passage and they think that Jesus is highlighting his poverty and this is just like the rich young ruler. He's just telling this guy, you need to sell everything. You need to get rid of everything. 
And, and that's what you need to do in order to follow me. A lot of people like to talk a lot about uh, poverty and just, uh, just as there is prosperity theology on one end of the spectrum that's so dangerous, thinking that somehow only, uh, it, it's only right for Christians to be healthy and wealthy and all of that sort of thing. That's, that's just, couldn't be further from the truth. So prosperity theology is dangerous, but also poverty theology is dangerous. And poverty theology would take a verse like this and be like, yeah, you shouldn't own a home. And if we, were to take, if we were to take this passage literally and interpret it according to poverty theology, that anyone tonight who sleeps on a bed under a roof is not worthy of being a disciple. If that's what Jesus is getting at, then we're all in trouble. I mean, Jesus went into house after house. Paralyzed man being torn, being brought down through a roof that's torn apart. Jesus having meals in people's homes. Jesus staying over in people's homes. Never once did Jesus say, you need to sell this home because in order to become a Christian, in order to truly follow me, you must embrace poverty. Did it ever dawn on you that when Jesus was being crucified, they held a raffle for his clothes? If Jesus was all about poverty and having absolutely nothing, wouldn't you think that his, his clothing would just sort of end up in the garbage? But the soldiers who, who were witnessing the crucifixion saw his garment, and not that it was some fancy, overly expensive, vain sort of garment, but it was worth something for them to cast lots to decide who got to take it home and wear it. What Jesus is getting at is, think about what he's saying. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. How would a fox do if the fox needed to live in a nest? Having to climb up a tree and then squeeze into this tiny collection of sticks all woven together? How, how would that go? How would a bird that's accustomed to flying all over the place, how would a bird like to live in a hole in the root system of that tree? What Jesus is getting at here is belonging. And if you look at the context, look at the the previous paragraph, Luke chapter 9 verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So he sent guys ahead. Hey, we need a place to stay. Go find out where we can stay in Samaria. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And then in an an interesting um, little discussion, James and John are like, so do you want us to like send thunderbolts after them? And Jesus is like, no. It's very interesting that Jesus actually sent those, uh, the disciples back to uh, Samaria in the book of Acts to evangelize the, uh, the Samaritans. But Jesus had just been rejected in Samaria, just like he was rejected in Capernaum, just like he was rejected in Galilee, just like people wanted to throw him off a cliff, just like every time he opened his mouth, the Pharisees were trying to pick up stones to try to kill him. Just like even after he healed the man who was filled with, the legend of de- with, a, with a legion of demons that, that people begged him to leave. He didn't fit in. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The foxes says, you're not coming in this hole. The bird says, you don't belong in this nest. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, says that he was despised and rejected by men. Something you got to do this Christmas is to, is to find a way either to listen to it online or to go and see it live if you can, is to listen to Handel's Messiah this Christmas. And Handel's Messiah is one of the most beautiful um, uh, pieces of music and it, 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 it's so unbelievable. You go to this concert hall, this incredible orchestra, these unbelievably gifted musicians and they give you the program and it starts, all they do is sing Verses from the Bible. That's all they do. And it's so beautiful. And part one is all about the coming of Jesus Christ. It's all about Advent. It's all about Christmas. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders. All of those beautiful songs. It's so beautiful, it's so powerful, and it's so long. It's so funny that when you go to the Messiah, you see a lot of people after after part one is over, they take their coats and they leave because they think that's it. But part two is a lot more sobering. Part two begins with the mezzo-soprano singing Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected. And it talks about the cross and it talks about his death and burial and resurrection. But it began with a recognition that Jesus Christ was rejected everywhere that he went. And what Jesus is telling this enthusiastic person, and in, in, the, in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told this person was a scribe. Luke just calls him someone, but we know he was a scribe. This guy was well-educated. He was well-respected. He would have been a guest of honor in any home that he went into. And Jesus is telling him, you need to be prepared for rejection if you're going to follow me. This passage does not say that anyone who sleeps in their bed tonight under a roof can't be a Christian. But this passage is a warning to people who could go to bed tonight and feel completely at home and completely at peace in this world. That you feel like you belong in this world with its culture, with its morals, with its patterns of thinking, with its systems. Jesus says, we don't fit in that nest. We don't, we don't live in that hole. We have nowhere to lay our head. We actually have somewhere better to lay our head. We were made to live in heaven. And Jesus says, I've come from heaven and I'm going back there. And if you follow me, you can come. But there is a cost, there is a warning, there is a commitment, a commitment to be willing to surrender your security the security that comes from keeping everybody happy and having everyone like you. It's the security that we struggle with when we go to these family Christmas events where you can't participate in every discussion. You can't laugh at every joke. You, you can't join in on every, any gossip conversation. And you feel like, I can't rest my head here. This is a nest that I just don't fit in. This is a, a hole that may be home for some, but not for me. I don't belong here. 
or those staff Christmas parties in our secular jobs where the activities that are happening and the conversations that are going on or just the general materialism that we see all around us, our neighbors, we see them coming back and forth in their driveway and another delivery from Amazon coming and parcel after parcel and recognizing that we, that doesn't fit for us. That's not what we're about. We're made for something more, for something greater. But the security, listen, all of us from the time we were very, very young, we just long to belong. And Jesus has come to satisfy that longing, to belong to him, to be a citizen of heaven, to rest your head in a mansion that he's gone to prepare for you. But there is a cost. There is a commitment that's involved. The guy told him, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus kind of replied by saying, well, wherever I go, I get rejected. And are you, are you committed to surrender your security in that way? So the first conversation is initiated by the person. They come and talk to Jesus. This next conversation is Jesus inviting someone to follow him. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here's the second thing we need to know about commitment, that we must silence our excuses. We must silence our excuses. Now this is the harshest sounding of all three of Jesus' statements here. But we need to remember that Jesus is omniscient. He knows some things about this guy that we don't know. We need to know that Jesus is holy, that he would not be commanding this man to dishonor his father because it's in the Ten Commandments. Command number five is honor your father and mother. So we can't be commanding him to dishonor his father in any, in any way and that Jesus is loving. It might seem that Jesus is telling this man to do something unloving to his family, but we need to understand that Jesus loves this man's father more than this man loves his father. And so we need to interpret this passage through that filter, what we know about Jesus. And Jesus is omniscient. And although, let, my, let me bury my father, let me go to be a part of my father's funeral seems legitimate. But Jesus knew something that obviously we, we can't see here. Here's some of the things that he might have that he, that he known or might have seen or understood about this man. And it involves just kind of an understanding of history, an understanding of how burials and funerals and mourning, how all of that happened and what that looked like in first century Palestine in Jewish culture. The first thing we need to understand is that the day you die is the day that you're buried. Not like, not like today where there's significant distance between uh, when someone is declared death and when someone is actually put into the grave. There's several days of making arrangements, organizing the funeral, all of that sort of thing. But in Jewish culture, you're, you're buried the day that you die. Jesus was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb on the day that he died. 
That is how it was done there. So what can we learn from that? Well, first of all, it raises the question, what on earth is he doing on the road with Jesus if his father died that day? Why is he even presented with the, with the opportunity to go and follow Jesus? And so, based on that question, scholars have sort of assumed or leapt to conclusions that perhaps his father wasn't even dead yet. Perhaps he was speaking, but he says, let me bury my father. He means, well, let me wait until my father dies. Perhaps he was sick or something like that. Again, all of this is just conjecture. And then the conjecture goes even further that perhaps the father was nowhere near death and burying his father means that he wanted his father's inheritance. And so it was, it was his material wealth that he was after. Let me bury my father so that I can get my inheritance. Then I'll go follow you, Jesus, because it will be less risky for me to go and follow you if I, if I do that. But again, all of that's conjecture. All he said is, let me bury my father. The other thing we need to understand about Jewish culture is that uh, you are, when you die, you are buried and then you are boxed. You're buried first and then you're boxed, which means that, that when you die, your body is put underground, but then a year later, your body was dug up and your bones were put into a box. And so there was a, it was a year, burial was like a year-long process. But again, none of that is in the passage. Any conclusion about a year-long process, any conclusion about wanting an inheritance, all of that is putting into the passage something that's not there. But what is there is the omniscient Son of God. The omniscient Son of God who wouldn't have gone to that guy and said, hey, come and follow me. If he knew that guy had a legitimate excuse to not go with him to Jerusalem, he wouldn't have asked him in the first place. And he knew that this man was using his father's death, whether it had just happened, was about to happen, or someday long in the future, Jesus knew that this man was making an excuse. He was giving lip service to Jesus. Yeah, I'm committed to you, but let me go and bury my father. And so my question for all of us today is, what excuses do we make? Is our excuse like this man's excuse? It's a family excuse. I've got a spouse who doesn't believe in Jesus. And so I can't follow Jesus all the way because it's my, it's my unsaved spouse that limits me from doing that. My parents aren't Christian or my children aren't. It's someone else's fault. I'm limited because of the situation that I am in. Maybe, maybe the excuse is family. Maybe you're so given over to the obligation that you feel to be loyal to your family that that eclipses your commitment and your loyalty to Jesus Christ. That's what this man's excuse was. But we have all kinds of excuses. When I just have more time, 
I, I will follow you, Jesus. I will get into your word. I will get more involved in church. I will join a small group. I will start being a witness, but it's just a busy season at work right now. I just need to get through these courses at school right now. I just need to get my finances in order right now. Excuse after excuse after excuse. And meanwhile, Jesus says, follow me and I will help you get through all of that. Yes, it's hard navigating family relationships. Let me lead you through it. Follow me. Yes, it's hard being a student in today's day and age, but let follow me and I'll help you get through it. No excuses. We need to silence our excuses. Recognize that we have them and let the omniscient son of God just even ask him right now, God, what, what is my excuse? What is holding me back? Am I blaming someone else? Am I blaming my lack of time or my busyness or my other commitments? I love how Warren Wearsby put it. He said he was worried about someone else's funeral when he should have been planning his own. He's worried about someone else's funeral when he should have been planning his own. And I I, I honestly... I want us to be aware that what Jesus is saying here, let the, let the dead bury their own dead. He's talking about two different kinds of death. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. And we need to be prepared for our own funeral, our own physical death when we're physically dead. The only thing that will matter at that point is whether we were made physically alive or remain physically dead. Jesus taught all the time about there being two kinds of life and two kinds of death. He said, if you lose your life, you'll save it. How does that make sense? It only makes sense if there's two kinds of life. He says, but if you save your life, you'll lose it. What does that mean? It must mean that there's two kinds of death. There's a spiritual death and a physical death. And so Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And then he says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, this is urgent. Go and get it done. And whatever your excuse is, it's not worth it. Because at the end of the day, eternity is in the balance. Spiritual life and death is in the balance. Heaven and hell is in the balance. And so Jesus is calling this man to live with urgency. He says, you go and proclaim the kingdom. And again, here's the context. Look ahead at Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And they were supposed to go and proclaim the kingdom. There was urgency. There's urgency involved in following Jesus. And it's our excuses that take our eyes off of the urgency of the mission. And that's what this man was doing. And just so we're being clear, Jesus commands us to honor our father and mother. And funerals and visitations and internments are a way to show honor. Jesus was not saying that it's bad to go to a funeral. Some people would say it's, we interpret this passage wrong and say it's bad to go to a non-Christian funeral. Oh my goodness. 
leaving people in the dark when you have the light at their darkest hour. It's, it's such an incredible opportunity to go to visitations, to go to interments, to go to funerals, to be there for people, to comfort people, and to be a light at a dark time in people who are in darkness. So Jesus wasn't, wasn't being unloving to this man. He wasn't being unloving to this man's father. He wasn't being unma- unloving to this, this man's mother. I mean, how much does the Bible say about caring for widows? His mother would have been a widow. And so Jesus is, is not telling him to be unloving to his family. So we must silence our excuses. And then the third one comes along again with enthusiasm in verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's the third thing we can learn about commitment. Number three, that we must strengthen our resolve. We must surrender our security. We must silence our excuses and we must strengthen our resolve. It's interesting, this last conversation, there's a, there's a request to go home and then there's a discussion about plowing a field. Here's what's really interesting about this. In the Old Testament, there's this like rock star prophet named Elijah. And Elijah had this powerful ministry, one of the most well-known prophets in the Old Testament. He's the, he appears with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was sort of the, the ultimate poster boy for being a prophet. And Elijah was calling a disciple. He was calling someone to follow him. And his name was Elisha. It's like, hey, our names rhyme. This will work out great. And so he calls Elisha. But when he calls Elisha, Elisha is plowing a field. And guess what Elisha asks? Elisha says, I want to go with you, Elijah, but first let me say farewell to those who are home. Plowing, request to go say goodbye to people. But here's the interesting thing. Elijah said yes. Jesus said no. And so often, Jesus is pointing to the fact that Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. That Joshua is great, that Jesus is greater. That David was great, but Jesus is greater. That Elijah is great, but Jesus is greater. Elijah had an important ministry and played a key role, but it paled in comparison. The urgency, the significance, and the importance of following Jesus trumps everything. And that what you are being called to as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are being called to something that's more significant and impactful than what anyone was called to in the Old Testament. That Jesus was bringing to fulfillment all that was predicted, all, everything was leading and pointing towards Jesus Christ. And he has invited you to follow him. And so this guy wants to say goodbye to some people, just like Elisha did. But Jesus says, no, you got to put your hand to the plow and not look back. Again, Jesus was omniscient. He probably knew that this, this guy was kind of like Lot's wife, who just couldn't help, couldn't help but turn around. 
and paid the consequences. Jesus could see right into his heart and what he truly loved and what he truly longed for. And so he talked about the importance of strengthening our resolve. Notice the, how both of these potential followers of Jesus use the word first. Jesus needs to be first. But when you look at what the guy who needs to bury his father says, verse 59, says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then this guy says, let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus needs to be first. He needs to be first in our lives. He needs to be first in our relationships. He needs to be first in our, in our finances. He needs to be first in everything. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And then I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. He's talking about this permanent decision that needs to be made. I was, I was trying to think of an analogy. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a farmer. I grew up in Hamilton. I saw a lot more smokestacks than silos. I, I honestly, I, I know nothing about farming. Now, ultimately, this analogy is, is talking about the permanence of the decision. Is I'm plowing now, and I'm not, I'm not bird watching. I'm not having a conversation with someone else. I am plowing and there's nothing else that I am doing and I'm going straight at it. It's a, it's a permanent, we gotta strengthen our resolve that there's no turning back. And I was racking my brain this week trying to think of, is there anything permanent in 21st century North America? Like anything? I mean, the marriage commitment used to be considered permanent. You, you put a, a, a ring on and, 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 yet, and yet marriage is no longer permanent. All you need are lawyers. And tattoos used to be permanent. And you know, you, you, you think about it. Okay, this is a, this is a big commitment. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get a tattoo. And so you go through it and now lasers. And so Lawyers get rid of marriage and lasers get rid of tattoos and I was right. What is actually permanent in our world? What is, I'm choosing to do this and there's no turning back. But that's what Jesus is getting at here. That when you decide to follow him, there is no turning back. I want to bring a, a picture up on, this, on the screen right now. And this is a picture, this is in the, uh, in the boardroom at the facility at Harvest Bible Chapel, Oakville. 
And this is where the staff have their Tuesday morning prayer meetings. This is where the uh, elders meet together to talk about discipline and doctrine and direction in the church. This is where a lot of key decisions are made. A lot of praying, a lot of planning, a lot of preparing. And all over the room, there's all of these sort of key verses or statements that are kind of foundational to that church and what the church is about. But there's one picture, and there's no words to it. It's just a picture of a man plowing a field. And it's the idea of this verse right here. That he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. When a farmer's plowing a field, he's, he's, he's trying to dig or cut a, a furrow in the ground that needs to be perfectly straight. And if he's turning around, he's going, it's going to be crooked. It's going to be zigzagged. It's going to be all over the place. And Jesus says, if you're following me, you need to be so focused, your resolve needs to be so strengthened that you won't turn back. And what are the things in in your life that cause you to want to turn back, that cause you to second guess the decision of following him? You know, the amazing thing about all of these stories is that we don't actually get to see how the, how the people respond. The guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. But there's no response. Did the person say, okay, I'm still going with you? Or did he say, ah, that's a big commitment, I'm not gonna go? And then the other guy, I need to bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. And then, so did he go back? Or did he stay with him? And then this other guy, I want to go home and say goodbye to some people and it's not recorded. It, it doesn't tell us, did he go back or did he go forward with Jesus? And as I was thinking about that this week and thinking about how Jesus is omniscient, he knows everything about everyone and Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to write very words, the Holy Spirit who is working and speaking through his word right now. And just as Jesus is omniscient and knew everything about those particular people, the Holy Spirit is here in his omniscient and he knows everything about every single one of us. And he knows about the, the lure or the draw or the obligation that we have to our family or to this world or to the desire for belonging. He knows our tendency to want to turn back and the team's going to lead us in this song that says I have decided to follow Jesus and I just want to give you an opportunity just right here right now if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you today saying stop turning around stop making excuses and start following me And I want to be crystal clear about what's being said in this passage. This is not committing to be more committed. This is not being resolved to have more resolution in your life. This is not focusing on being focused. 
It's a commitment to follow Jesus. It's a resolve to follow Jesus. If your eyes are on your resolution, you're just going to fail. But if your eyes are on Jesus Christ, you're never going to want to look back. And so if God is stirring in your heart right now to follow him and to never turn back, maybe you've been following him for years or maybe you're making that decision today, I just want to invite you just to show that God is working in your life. I want to invite you to stand. If that describes you right now, I am deciding to follow Jesus. No turning back. So just take a moment. And if God is working in your life in that way, just stand up to show that you are making that commitment. You're putting your hand on that plow. There is no more turning back. Let's pray together. God, I pray for these ones who have made this indication, God. And Lord, I pray that their eyes would not be on themselves. Lord, that their eyes would not be on other people, Lord. I pray even for those who are too nervous to stand, God. I pray that their eyes would be fixed on you, that they would put that hand on the plow and move straight because they're following straight after you. And God, I pray, I pray that we would strengthen our resolve to follow you, God. Forgive us for the excuses that we make. Forgive us for the security that we look for in other places. God, I pray that we would be a people who follow hard after you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.